for those of you who I have not had the opportunity to meet personally, my name is Miles, and I have seen God do special things over the course of nine years in our time here in Auburn. But uh, the last nine days have been incredibly special. And we're walking through the book of Acts, reading these stories about the early church and the miraculous hand of God on this group of people in the Greco-Roman world. But we're also looking around in 2023 and going, this is not just a story that's stuck in the pages of scripture. I'm seeing people get saved. I'm seeing people lifting their eyes to Jesus and finding new meaning and purpose. I'm seeing people dream again about a different future for their marriage and their family. I'm seeing the kingdom of God come in our day. This is what the local church is supposed to be. And in a moment like what we're going to turn the pages to today, it's especially significant for our church individually. Uh, This is a sermon that I don't think I could just like take the sermon I'm going to preach on the passage today and preach it any other place. I think it's unique and specific for this time period in the life of our church because it's about a specific church. When the gospel goes to the Gentiles, hello, last week, the blood is not done. It does not stop with the Jews or with Israel, but all nations are invited. There are churches that follow that spread of the gospel. So the church is made up of local communities that make up a greater body of Christ or the bride of Christ that represents God to the world and does life together deeply in fellowship and community. And so it's normal that in the Jewish world, these communities pop up wherever there's a synagogue. But then when the gospel gets to the Gentiles, it gets a little more complicated because their lives are not founded and rooted on a system of coming to worship in the synagogue. So churches are sprouting up in all of these cities that have never had a local expression of worship to the God of Israel, who is the God of the Bible, And the most prominent of all of these churches will literally become the central hub of the church in the future of the book of Acts and in the New Testament and replace Jerusalem. That church is in a city called Antioch. But before I read you that passage, I want to give you the title. The title of this sermon is called A Church on Fire. A Church on Fire. Look at my next to you say fire, fire. Go talk about fire today in church, fitting how hot it is. But anytime you talk about fire in church, you got to clarify that because there's people who come from different backgrounds. Some of y'all hear fire and you're like, oh no, I I don't don't need fire. Don't need brimstone. Don't need that talk. Grew up with that talk. But on my generation side, fire was more synonymous with zeal and passion. It's like, oh, they're on fire for God. That thing's on fire. Like it's spreading and it's just uncontrollable and it's amazing. And so when we talk about fire, we're talking about being filled with a level of inner zeal and connectedness to the power of the Holy Spirit. This moment in the history of the church cannot be overestimated in its significance for what will play out for the next 2,000 years. Church in Antioch is a massive moment. And the description that we're going to get in Acts chapter 11 is incredible in and of itself. But what I want to do today is I want to take what the Holy Spirit was doing in this church 2,000 years ago and run a little compare and contrast of how we are living in 2023. And in that, there's good news and there's bad news. Good news is some of the things they were doing are things that we are directly seeing copy and paste and going, whoa, that's so cool how we're getting to share in the same story and we need to be doing more of that and inviting more people into more of that. Some of this is going to be really encouraging for the moment that we're in, but a lot of it's going to be really concerning as well because there are some things happening in this church 2,000 years ago that we've not only neglected, we have completely ignored. 
And so if we are going to continue to be a church set on fire for the glory of God, I want this passage to encourage us, but I also want it to convict us. At ACC, we always say, we want you to feel like you're getting a hug during the sermon while your toes are getting stepped on. So it's like, oh, I like this, but ow, got to change. Like that's the idea behind what we're going to read. And that's the kind of conviction I think we're going to read about today in the scriptures. Did you bring your Bible to church this morning? If you brought your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. So many Bibles. If you don't have one, we'd love to get one for you. Hold it up high. And turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're going to pick up in verse 19 and read about the church in Antioch. This is such a good passage of scripture. And with every effort in your mind and your engagement right now, I want you to lean into the scriptures. There's something so powerful about the people of God gathered together on a Sunday morning, reading the words of life off of a page and going, God, How does this speak to us right here and right now? We trust you, we trust you, and it's not, oh, y'all, it's not gonna be good because of the vessel who's delivering it. It's gonna be good because of the source, the spirit of God. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts." He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This is a side note, but I love Acts eleven twenty four. I'd be great if that was just the only thing that was ever written about me. Or, and I hope if you're a man in the room, you read that. And you go, he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What a legacy. And what a life to be lived by our man Barnabas. Now let's talk about what's happening here. Here's what happened. Acts chapter 11 tells us, that the persecution that happened in Jerusalem, remember when Stephen got stoned, that persecution led to a dispersion. Now the believers are not free to gather together in their home city of Jerusalem, so they have to spread out. But watch, the very persecution that was intended to be poured on the fire of the early believers like water actually served as gasoline spreading it out. That when the Jewish leadership tried to shut down this move of God. All they did was perpetuate it and made it even bigger. They actually only caused the very thing that Jesus commanded the church to do in Acts chapter one, which was what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Early on, you get no signs that there's a real big intention to get to Samaria or to the ends of the earth, but God uses the persecution of the early church to spread the fire of the church. What does that mean for us in 2023? Suffering While it's never plan A or what we desire, suffering is never a reason for the fire of the gospel to be put out. It can always be an opportunity for God to spread and multiply his original intention through the church. And he does that in your life. Suffering is a megaphone to what God is doing in and through your story in real time. And if you will allow your heart to not get bitter by circumstance, but to stay open to what God is doing, I would argue that suffering is the exact context the gospel will spread in and through your family and in and through your life more than ever before. And this was absolutely true about the early church. But when they spread out, they were only spreading the gospel to Jews. 
Go to where synagogue is, even in a Gentile city, find the Jews. Tell them what Jesus has done. He's the king of the Jews. He's the son of man, prophesied in Daniel. Pretty explanatory from everything that they already knew written from the Old Testament. But there's a few who decide, let's tell it to the Greeks as well. And maybe they heard a little bit from Peter about, hey, like I had this dream and everybody's invited. And they go to Antioch which is 300 miles north of Jerusalem and the third largest city in the world at the time, behind only Rome and Alexandria. Massive city, multi-ethnic, Jews, Arabs, Greeks, Romans, all kinds of people. And it says, when they started preaching and talking about the gospel, it wasn't like a few people were interested and might come to the meeting. It is an explosion of fire that goes off in a very Gentile city. This city was made for worshiping other gods, particularly the goddess Daphne. There were all kinds of sexual practices and occults and things happening all over the place. But sometimes the most worldly environments are the most ripe places for the gospel to spread because they're the most empty, broken places. And so Antioch becomes a place where the church in Jerusalem is like, you got to be kidding me, Antioch? Yeah, it's not like a couple of them. The the Lord's hand is on it. There's something going on. We got to send our best. We got to send, oh, let's send Barnabas. Because Barnabas, you grew up in Cyprus, and Barnabas is fluent in Greek, one of their most experienced leaders. Let's send him up there. And when Barnabas gets there, he is like, you got to be kidding me. The grace of God is all over this. And he encouraged them to stay faithful to the Lord. Let's read what he does next. Apparently what happens starts to grow even more, verse 25. So then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's the apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Mark that down. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So what happens. Barnabas goes, he's encouraging them. They're getting built up. More people are getting saved. He's like, I need some help. I need some help from my friend Saul. If you weren't here earlier in this series, you don't realize the significance of this moment. Barnabas was the one who vouched for Saul when the church in Jerusalem wanted to reject him. But that was 10 years before this moment. Saul got persecuted in Jerusalem, so he had to go back home to Tarsus, and he's growing and and, and spreading a church there and developing more relationships. So Barnabas seeks him out, brings him over. Now they're kind of tag-teaming, teaching the church in Antioch, and it's going so well that the believers are first called Christians in Antioch. And the term was not the heading of a new religion. Y'all know the word Christian was not created by Christians? In the early church, they called themselves the brethren, the saints, the way, followers of the way of their rabbi. But Christian was intended to be a derogatory term where worldly people made fun of how much their lives sought out to emulate their rabbi, Jesus. It means little Christ. Like, oh, those Christians, they're just like surrendering every part of their lives to look like how this guy taught life to be lived. That's what it looks like for a church to be on fire, that even when the outside world notices it and makes fun of you, even in their making fun of you, it's a compliment. You, you guys just try to do everything he said and build your whole life on this thing. And then there's a strange moment at the end where there's a prophet who stands up and prophesies, hey, there's actually going to be a famine. 
and it's gonna affect our church in Jerusalem 300 miles away. So this is the first local offering that's taken globally in the history of the church. They take up an offering and they go, hey, we've seen by the Holy Spirit that this moment's gonna come, kind of like when Joseph saw the seven years of famine that were coming down the road, so we need to get ready for it. We need to take up an offering and now for the first time, you have one church serving as a financial hub for another church that's gonna be in more need really, really soon. Powerful, powerful stuff. Now, everybody look up here, don't miss this, this is so cool. When I read this passage, I saw three elements coming together all over the page and thought, not only have I read a book on this and had my heart set on this is where ACC needs to be going moving forward, but these three elements make up a church that was absolutely set on fire in Antioch. And even though I am not a good science student, I am way more social studies and math and literature, was never good at science. In my head, as I was in my office, I was like, wait, aren't there three elements that make up fire? Now you can, you can correct this if, if I'm wrong on this, but this week I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you're gonna make fire, what do you need? You need oxygen, hello, air. You need fuel, something to warm things up and create power, but you also need heat. And when these three elements come together with a chain reaction, so it's not enough to just have heat, oxygen, and uh, what's the third one? See, you can tell I'm really good at science. Fuel. It's, see, I'm working, guys. It's not, it's not just enough to have those three spread out and individually there. You got to have a chain reaction that combusts it and pulls it all together. Now, this sermon with this point was already written on Friday night as I am getting a shower and getting dressed to come to prayer, and my wife is cooking multiple meals like moms have to do when their children don't like to eat anything. And so Courtney's cooking our meal. It's more healthy and more, and more flavors and all that. And then simple meal for the children at the same time. Well, Mercy Jane was acting really weird on Friday. And so the only thing that would calm her down was watching me shower. It's TMI, but she's one. And so she's like sitting outside the shower, shower, and then I get dressed and she's like with me the whole time. But then I notice she's kind of crawling away. I'm like, that's fine. Dinner's probably almost ready. I hear all kinds of sounds happening in the kitchen. And then I hear a sound that no husband ever wants to hear. I hear Courtney yell out, no, no, get Mercy Jane. Oh my goodness. I think I just set the whole house on fire. That's what I heard from the bathroom. And I am like, you gotta be, and you can hear all the cooking that's going on in the kitchen. And I, I turn the corner and this is never, never to make light of fire in the home because it is a serious thing. But my wife is just in an all out panic mode, not really processing reality. She's, she like freezes up and can't move and can't think, can't think about where a fire extinguisher is. When I turn the corner, I'm expecting flames everywhere. We're calling the fire department. Like it's that kind of reaction. Mercy Jane's crawling into the fire, by the way. And I look, <laughs> I turn the corner. It is, a, it is a paper towel on the floor that has slightly caught slight flame. I mean, like, um, and she's, she's totally frozen. Like, I think I'm going to burn the house down. And I, so I like calmly, I'm trying to think, we don't, I don't even think this needs a fire extinguisher. Cause I'm trying to remember all the fire safety stuff, like gas fire, don't put water on it, but this is a, a paper towel. And so I, I fill, I fill up a cup of water and just slowly, everybody good. Everybody. Okay. Pour it on it. Fire gone. And she is like, Oh, thank God. And, and, and just sympathy for all the moms out there. But in that moment, I looked at her and I was like, you're not going to believe what my sermon is called this week. 
I've got to use this as an illustration. She wants you all to know that she's a responsible parent and takes, and takes home safety very seriously. But in that moment, I was like, whoa, like just the, the presence of fire in the room was going, yep, all three of these. And ask me how that happens. Ask me how while you're cooking, a random paper towel just happens to catch on fire and end up on the floor with no reaction whatsoever. Pray for my wife, clearly overwhelmed, and I'm grateful. The meal was really good, by the way. Anyway, why am I telling you all this about fire? Because I believe the church on fire in Antioch was able to bring together in a chain reaction three distinct elements that mark every move of God that's marked by the Spirit of God. So what's happening in Antioch? And then we'll ask the question, what would it look like for us? Number one, a church on fire starts and ends with the grace of God. The grace of God. Did you notice in verse 21, it said that they went and preached there and the hand of the Lord was on it. That that's why it spread out. The Lord's hand was on them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And then when Barnabas gets there in verse 23, it says he saw what the grace of God had done. When God sets a church on fire, God is always the initiator. You cannot manipulate or self-create a movement of God's spirit. It has to be God who wants to do it because those believers could have been faithful and preached in Antioch and maybe five people would have listened and that would have been fine. That would have been faithfulness. But there are times in the life of a church where God, based on his sovereign will, just goes, you know what I want to do with my hand? I want to move powerfully here, right now. You want to know what I want to do with my grace is I want to catch people's attention. And the reason why it's important to hit grace of God first is too many believers, and I think in our church, so oftentimes we can assume that fire is about our ability to manifest something or come up with something in and through our lives. You know, the zeal that you have personally for God always starts with God igniting it. So when you say, God set a fire in my soul, you have to remember that the originator of the fire is always the spirit of God. And that keeps every move of God humble because the church of Antioch is never, well, we got Barnabas here and that's when it really took off. Or then he, Barnabas, Barnabas friends with Paul and he got here, man, so powerful. We got so many gifted people. No, the movement in Antioch never begins. If God doesn't go, I wanna do something and I wanna do it here and I wanna do it right now. So if we're going to be a church on fire, that's the first thing you remember. Starts with the grace of God, ends with the grace of God, because it's all about God. But then the second one, and this one's a little more complicated to conjure up, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. This church is together living life to be formed into the image of Jesus. How do I know that? Because they were called little Christ. What was so distinct about the way the church in Antioch was living is that they decided to radically remodel their daily lives around how Jesus would live if he was one of them. I know that because of what Barnabas noticed about them. Look at verse 23. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Okay, if you're Barnabas and you're showing up and seeing the hand of God at work, why not just clap it up and go, hey, what God's done is amazing. You guys are great. Just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But it says he encourages them, which is his spiritual gift. His name means son of encouragement to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Why does he do that? Because one moment where the grace of God gets your attention does not guarantee a lifetime of devotion. And a lifetime of devotion is made up of daily disciplines that look like living the life Jesus would live 
if he lived on the inside of you, and he does by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want you to turn to the Lord with all your heart because the process of being sanctified over time is the lifelong process of looking more like Jesus and less like who you used to be. And it's painful and it's hard and it involves effort and it involves, I love the word and hate the word discipline because it's the same word we have for disciple. It means a choice to integrate spiritual practices into your lifestyle where now you have made a choice to become more like Jesus over time. So what catches the church on fire? It begins with God wanting to do something, but then it is fueled and sustained by a group of people who are serious enough about their devotion to Jesus to watch their daily practices change. And now you combine the grace of God with spiritual disciplines and we're almost there. What else do we have? Number three, and this one's real hard to get your mind around, spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts. So when Barnabas got there, what did he do? He encouraged them. Encouragement is listed as a spiritual gift, one of the 21 listed in the New Testament. But then when Saul gets there, he doesn't do the same thing. Saul teaches because he's a teacher. He's a pretty good one, by the way. If you, don't, if you don't know any of his teaching, just 13 letters in the New Testament, you should check them out sometime. Start with Romans, then maybe flip over to Ephesians. This guy's a good teacher. He's so good at teaching that it's almost like it's not him. It's almost like he's specially endowed with a gift that Jesus himself on the inside of him is the one doing it. But he's not the only one. You got this guy, Agabus, who stands up and he's like, hey, uh, there's gonna be a famine. How do you know that? Agabus? What, are you a weatherman? Like, whoa, 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 how do you know things are going to go bad? Like, no, I, I have a gift, a prophetic gift, and I can see things that other people can't see. And we need to take up an offering. Well, when you take up an offering, you need the people with the spiritual gift of generosity to step up. So you see how the integration of all of these spiritual gifts are now coming together in a supernatural activity that some of them look super normal, like giving money, and some of them look supernatural, like, hey, I saw it, I don't know how I know this, but I just know this. And now you've got this amazing bringing together of three things that make up a church on fire, the grace of God, spiritual disciplines, and spiritual gifts. Now, I did not come up with these three things by just reading about a church in Antioch and our pages in Acts. I've been telling you guys all summer long that there is a book rocking my world right now called Convergence. It's by a pastor named John Thompson who pastors a church in Canada. I certainly don't agree with everything that's in the book, but it is a picture of what does it look like for the church to combine three things, revival, activity of the Holy Spirit, spiritual disciplines, and spiritual gifts. And so I read that book this summer and I put it in front of our church because I was like, you know, we're so weak on the spiritual gift part and even having like any sort of a language for this. You need to check out this book and watch this. But then I'm reading about the church in Antioch and I'm thinking about our church in this moment where thousands of people are wanting to gather here and they're wanting to worship here. But honestly, I, I don't think you're here because you want to hear another sermon or because you need more songs. I think you're looking for, hey, what is the way of life and the lifestyle that we're trying to capture as a church? And I'm saying what it would look like is for us to take these three things and watch God set this thing on fire and do something even greater than we've seen before. So what do I want to do? Can I put those three things back up there for what a church on fire looks like? I want to ask the question at Auburn Community Church, the three things. There they are. Grace of God, spiritual disciplines, and spiritual gifts. I want to one by one go through and go, okay, 2023, you're at Auburn Community Church. And so sorry if you're visiting. This is a very home-based message, but I think it's needed given the passage. How are we doing at these three things? And let's start with the one that's not even a little bit about us. The grace of God. There are moments where you have to look around at a space where you're sitting and go, 
God is doing something right now. And my, even my ability to ignore it or be negligent of it would be a sin against God. God, for whatever reason in his own sovereign will, has chosen this moment to pour out his spirit on this particular church right now. And it is, the very act of God being the one to pour out his spirit is intended to bring humility, not pride. That's why Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Like the the purpose of God's mighty hand or his sovereign will doing something that you didn't ask for necessarily is that you would go, whoa, that's not me. And so when I, when I think about the grace of God, my number one thing I want to say to our church is, yes, God's hand is on us in a special way. But that also means we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful of being more proud of the way we do church than we are excited about names written in the book of life. And we need to be very careful that we do not develop a petty, consumeristic, critical attitude that honestly I think was the enemy's effort against our church in the first couple of months of opening this building. I think we've stabilized and just given some dreams and visions that people in our prayer team have had. I think we're at a position of stabilization, but I want to keep that warning out there. The way the enemy stirs up dissension, he keeps us from being in all of God's grace by looking at ourselves and fighting over things that don't really matter. So we've got to watch our attitude. We've got to make sure we're humbly submitted to God. But we also got to make sure we're not negligent, just walking around like, oh, this is just normal. When you're in a moment and you go, God, your spirit being poured out in a new way, you, you got to create space and you got to go, I, I got to be paying attention. That if ACC is your home church, it's no longer that guy you listen to or that thing that you follow. It is a body and a movement that we need your particular contribution and effort to come with open hands and go, I am a part of something bigger than myself because God's grace is doing a new thing. And where the people of God create availability, God has the capacity to pour out fire from heaven. So I I think we got the grace of God. I'm not saying that's going to last forever or look this way or that way. I'm going, whoa. Guys, anybody else looking around Thursday night going? On Thursday night, I was standing over here behind the keys and I legitimately had the thought, this, what I'm witnessing in reality is not real. I I had that thought. I was like, that's not real. What's happening right now? If you weren't in the room, I hate that for you, but it was like the Holy Spirit was tangibly pulling people's attention to the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves them and that nothing they could live for could ever compete with Jesus. And I mean like spreading throughout the, it was like, this is not real. I'm dreaming about this. This is not really happening. Those are the days that you're sitting in as you're honking at the person to go faster in the parking lot. So we got to maintain that humility about the grace of God. Number two, let's talk about this one, spiritual disciplines. This is something that if you have come to our church after we built this building, you are at a significant disadvantage. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to judge you. It's a beautiful building I'd, I'd come to. But you missed out on some vision-defining series that we did as a church, two of them in particular, that you need to go back and listen to. One is Remnant, our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and one is Daniel, Children of Revival. We basically got in front of our church and said, this is a different model that most of us are used to when we think about church. But pretty much what we want to do with the future of ACC is build it toward what we call the remnant, which are deeply formed disciples of Jesus. It means that our church is not a commercial for people to decide to stay long enough to maybe pray a prayer one day. Our church is an immediate headfirst dive into the depths of what it means to know Jesus, trusting that as we raise the bar, the spirit will fill in the gaps. 
So our church specifically exists to equip the saints for works of ministry. Our church exists for believers. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to create space for new people to be evangelized. Absolutely. We totally missed the point of the Great Commission if we did that. No, we're going to do all those things. But the idea of ACC is that it would be normal here for you to be deeply formed into the image of Jesus and for this Jesus thing to radically change your daily practices. We don't want it to stand out in our church to have a deep prayer life or to have a devotional time with God. Like, whoa, you're like really on fire and into this thing. We want that to be normal. We want you to stand out here if you're half-hearted and faking it. Like we want you to be coming, but I'm getting more and more uncomfortable the more I go around that place because everybody's kind of conforming their lives and changing their kids' schedules and editing their priorities and shifting some finances. And I'm just not in the mood to totally turn my life upside down. I like the sermon and I like the songs, but hey, if that's you, this, this is not it. We want this space to be where people naturally get ingrained to going into the depths of spiritual practices and disciplines. What are those? They vary all over the map, but they look like the lifestyle of Jesus, a prayer life that is vibrant, applying the scriptures to your life, times of silence and solitude with God. I can't tell you how many people in the last couple of years have been in church for decades and have never consistently spent time alone with God and now they're doing it and they have a personal relationship with Jesus that's become vibrant and they can't shut up about it and it's so awesome to see. But it's not just private things. It's things like corporate worship. You know, going to church is a spiritual discipline you're gathering with the saints. You know, your community group is an act of engaging your body in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Generosity is a spiritual discipline. Sabbath is a spiritual discipline. Some of y'all, the greatest step you could take to becoming more like Jesus is becoming less like this culture in the world by taking a breath for 24 hours once a week. And hundreds of people have done that in the last couple of years. Now, if you're new, you're like, I didn't know that this was happening. And part of that is just the nature of Sunday after Sunday. So many things get washed out. You got to go back and make sure you check out those moments. But you got to ask yourselves, is being involved in this church for me really about radically integrating the disciplines of Jesus into my life? Do you live in a way that allows you to be conformed into the image of Jesus over time? Because here's what we found out. We're really good at emotional moments where people have a moment with God and moments can change your life, but choices create futures. You need to write that down. Moments can change your life, but choices or decisions create futures. A man reaps what he sows. You will not mock God with the way you live your life and you will not be able to circumvent the daily choice to becoming more like Jesus if you want to live a beautiful existence this side of heaven. I'm all for big moments and, and, and knowing how forgiven you are and new beginnings, but there comes a time where you gotta understand every decision you make in this life is creating a future. That's true about your body. That's true about your family. That's true about your education. You know this. There are moments in your life where where you're sitting right now, look up here, y'all don't miss this. Where you're sitting right now was written by a choice that you made in the past and a future was unveiled. The choice to allow Jesus to be formed deeply on the inside of you will determine whether or not you sustain in your faith over time. So many people ask like, that worship night was so powerful on Thursday. Why don't y'all do that every Thursday? because we don't want people to believe that that's it. Like that, that zeal and that passion, lightning in a bottle is so great, right? But that's the mountaintop. And so much of life is in the valley, walking with your shepherd. If you don't spend time with him, if you don't slow down, if you don't know how to pray, if you don't know how to grow, if you don't know how to give, if you don't know how to do the stuff, no one's gonna look at you and go, little Christ, Christian, and you will fall by the wayside. And so church, I, I just want to say, I, I recognize as your leader, the vast majority of you guys are not doing this stuff. 
That's normal in the life of our church. I think our, our number is, is higher than most, but we're calling you. We're going to keep calling you. The goal is not to get you here and have a moment. The goal is to get you to go, I'm a part of the remnant, and I'm growing and becoming more like Jesus. That's spiritual disciplines. Number three, spiritual gifts. Okay, here we go. Conviction time, me being the convicted one. In nine years as a church, there has been very little talk about the theme of spiritual gifts in the New Testament and absolutely no organized effort to help you get equipped and exercise them in your life personally. I am very sorry for that. The New Testament is explicit about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And for many years, I've been scared to go there because I don't want you guys to think I'm getting weird. I am conservative, orthodox, biblical, our elders are, but we're also continuationists, which means we don't believe the Holy Spirit ceased when the book of Acts was closed or when the apostles passed away. The Holy Spirit's still moving. And we would say that out loud, but in a lot of ways for nine years, we have been functionally cessationist in that, yeah, the Spirit could do miracles. It's kind of rare and weird when he does, but we'll see. And, uh, oh, yeah, there, there's only one baptism. Like, you just get, you get baptized into Christ Jesus. Like, you don't have to demonstrate a second baptism by speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift. And that's where we stop that conversation. But we don't, like, go on to clarify, hey, here's how you could start to learn what spiritual gifts are for yourself and how you might be individually gifted. So you see why I'm kind of scared to go there because you start going there and you get into some weird ground that people can become divisive over. But if you take out spiritual gifts, the fire doesn't exist. And I love personality tests. I love uh, all kinds of different personality tests that we've done with our staff. I love learning more about myself and seeing it in other people. But personality tests are not in the New Testament. Spiritual gifts are. It means when you're saved by God and filled with the Holy Spirit, God endows you with a special, I, I don't even really love the word gift. I like the word grace. He gives you this grace to do something that's not you. And the vast majority of Christians have no idea what their grace is. How many Sundays have you come in here and gone, man, when he's up there and he says something about the Bible and applies it to my life, I feel like God is talking to me, not that Italian guy. You know why? Because he is. When God gifts a human being to do something that they couldn't otherwise do without him, that is a spiritual gift. Now, spiritual gifts can be exercised all over the, 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 the I would say, the menu of, of the list of them, but most believers have one that God keeps bringing up again and again and again. And we have had no way of telling y'all, hey, here's what yours might be. And here's how that might fit into the local church. Part of the reason why we've been slow to do that is we've been content to use the few gifts that happen on stage and not unleash the full power of the body of Christ. So here's what's going to happen. October 8th, you need to mark your calendar. We're going to do a church at home. If you haven't been in our church for a while, sometimes we don't gather in buildings. Sometimes we gather in living rooms. And the church at home will be a teaching on spiritual gifts, an assessment that you're going to take. And then after that, a separate short video on how your particular gift could make sense in the life of the local church. This is a first step for us. We've never gone into ground like this before. I would highly recommend if you have time before October 8th, read the book Convergence, because then you will know so much of the lingo that we're going into in that talk. And I would just say, get ready for something new that God might open your eyes to because he's opening my eyes to this in a brand new way. Tyler Miller, our youth pastor is extremely passionate about this and he'll be the one. He taught our staff this whole thing and now we're kind of rolling it out in front of the whole church. And the idea is to get this in place before membership because we feel like joining our church should require you knowing, hey, here's how the Holy Spirit has gifted me individually. 
And as you unleash that, the Spirit breathes on it in a new way. Patience, y'all. We, we will explain all of this, and we will wade into these new waters together. But I hope you hear my heart in this. My heart is, I believe, because of fear, we have significantly limited the fire that God wants to pour out through ACC. And if we get biblical enough, I mean ruthlessly biblical, the Bible is not silent about spiritual gifts. They're everywhere in the New Testament. We're silent about it because we're afraid to get weird. Guys, if you're filled up with the almighty power of God on the inside of your physical body, don't you expect that to have some weirdness to it? Just something that might be outside the realm of your control or your knowledge. Let's say yes to more of God. And I've already gone too long. So lastly, we got to bring it all together. Okay, put the fire one back up. Put the fire one back up. We're going to go back to fire. Y'all still with me? Y'all still with me? I know this is a very teachy sermon. Okay, what do you have for a church on fire? No, 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 no. The, the first fire one, the, the, the like elements of scientific fire, scientific fire, scientific fire. Here we go. Come on. The first one. Yes. Okay. What do you have? Oxygen plus fuel plus heat. But then hold on, hold on. It's not enough to have the three elements. There's got to be a chain reaction. There's got to be Courtney putting a paper towel on the stove. Like whatever happened. There's got to, how does it all connect? How do embers start to fan into flame? Hey guys, look up here. If, if you don't, if you miss what I'm about to say at the very end, this whole thing will be a wash. I promise. You can have the grace of God. And you can have spiritual disciplines and you can start to talk about spiritual gifts, but there's got to be this chain reaction that brings it all together. And I want to argue and put in front of you today, this invitation, the chain reaction for a church on fire is radical surrender, radical surrender. This is it. Have you surrendered all to Jesus in light of the gospel? This is not a new plan we're putting in front of our church. This is back to the age old question. Does Jesus have my everything? Have I come to the place where Jesus wins is not the headline of the human story, but he's actually won my heart and life. Why? Because if God is a consuming fire, he has to have a vessel to consume and God will not consume an unavailable vessel. God will not set on fire an under-surrendered church. There's got to be room to burn. And so the question I have for us today is, how do we get to a place where we are more captivated by knowing and pursuing Jesus than any temptation that sin throws our way? than any opinion that somebody else might have. You know, the main blocker, I think, for a lot of people who are growing their passion in Jesus is the opinion of what someone might think if you really go all into this. If you really start totally reorienting your life around worship for Jesus, if you really become one of those Christians who go, little Christ, wow, you're all in on that. The fear is, what are they gonna think? And what are they gonna say? And the fear is, well, do I have to let go of that? And do I have to get to the point where I give up that? And I'm just here to tell you today, almost 35 years old, there is absolutely no one and nothing that ever compares to knowing Jesus deeply and intimately and personally. He is all I want. He is all we want as a church. This is, this is not an invitation to be a part of the next wave and move of God. I'm just a guy who's leading something and in way over my head going, hey, what would it look like for us to get out of God's way? And what it would look like for us to get out of God's way is for you to get out of Jesus's way on the throne of your heart. And if you're there, celebrate that you're there. But if you're not, the ultimate invitation is not to a plan or these things that we're going to do. It's, hey, you see the life he's offering you? Do you want it? Put your life on the altar today.
That's what I want us reflecting on as we take communion right now. You can get your sets out right where you're at. Uh, those elements you should have grabbed on the way in, but if you didn't, just raise your hand right where you're at. And we're gonna have a moment as we take communion in the presence of God. You can raise it high. Every week we take communion remembering the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for us. If you're not a believer in Jesus, that is to say, if you're not radically surrendered to Jesus, this is not a meal that you wanna partake in. But if you are, we got those in your hands. Keep raising your hands high, they'll get to you. We got the communion stations around this room where you can come and kneel and take it for yourself. But I would invite you, wherever your heart is not surrendered. We got more on the floor if we can get to them in the middle somewhere over here, that'd be great. Husbands, please pray over your wives. And then we'll have a moment of just calling on God as a church, going, God, set this movement ablaze with your glory. Let's do this together.